0: This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, awarded Canstar's most trusted energy providers nationally 2021 and 22. That's Red Energy and Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world. Visit princewinestore.com.au. Don't shoot the messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin.
1: Hi everybody, welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger, this is episode 252, I'm Corrie Perkin and with me on the airwaves a long, long way away from our studio is Caroline Wilson. Hi Caro, where are you in the world?
2: I'm back in Amsterdam, Corrie, lovely to hear your voice again, lovely to see you again. It's cold but beautiful here, crisp, quite sunny days, we've had one day of rain and um, about five or six degrees, so not too bad at all. There's been a bit of snow, but I've missed that.
1: Speaking of cold, it sounds like you have one. Did you pick up my lurgy last week?
2: Well, <laughs> see, I hope not. Yes, thank you very much for that. Um, I don't know, Corrie. I think travel. I did sit next to someone on the plane who was sniffing a lot and um I'm just, you know, gonna get through it. But look, it's just beautiful to be here and see the family again. Great. And I'm having a lovely time. Got a couple of good tips for you. Wonderful. As I'm sure you do for me.
1: Well, we'll get on to um Amsterdam talk in a minute because everybody loves to hear what's happening. We'll also talk about the Australian Open. The tennis hasn't lost its luster. And I have a book and you and I have a recipe. We share a recipe because we've both had this and we think it's amazing. You've been to the movies, seen a great film, the one with uh, Bill Nye, which I can't wait to hear what you talk about. Firstly, Caro, there are a couple of things in the mailbag. And don't forget, Potties, we love to hear your letters, brickbats and bouquets, so keep them coming. Um, We have this one from Anne via email. Some time ago, Caro and Corrie talked about the Lost City of Melbourne film, and they recommended it. I just wanted to let them and everyone know there is a showing of this film by the city of Burundara on Wednesday, March the 1st, from 6 to 8.30pm at the Hawthorne Arts Centre. Oh, and what a brilliant tip. Uh, the tickets, Caro, are $10. And if anybody would like to go to this film, which, from memory, Caro Wilson nominated as one of her screens of 2022, you can book via the burundara.vic.gov.au backslash arts website. So Burundara a
2: beautiful film.
1: Yeah, B-O-R, film. just in case people confused how to spell it, dot avicgovernorau backslash arts. Yes, Caro, that is really one for the diary date, isn't it?
2: It is, and um, if you haven't caught it, I I can't believe it never got a wider release. I hope it does. I think it will. Often, you know, films come on at film festivals and you don't see them again for about six months, but um, a bit like Bill Nye in Living. I think that was briefly on at the British Film Festival, and I'm going to talk about it in a moment. Any other correspondence, Corrie?
1: Yes, um, from Yvette Caunt via Instagram. Hi, ladies. Another great episode. I'm with Caro. Afragata needs alcohol. I am a huge fan of this dessert and have always added Frangelico. Oh, there you go. See, we were trying to work out what you might use. And she said, glad to hear you are feeling better, Corrie. Thank you, Yvette. That's so kind of you. And while we are thanking people, can I please thank on behalf of Miss Jane and Caro and myself, Thank you to Red Energy for supporting our podcast. You guys are great. And don't forget, for all your energy needs, particularly if you're moving house and thinking, mm, might get a new energy retailer, Red Energy on 131806. Now, Carol, let's talk about the Amsterdam trip, why you have gone, what it's like over there. And firstly, let's begin at the beginning with the flight. So are you still wearing a mask on a flight?
2: No, interestingly not, but I think that depends on airlines. Um, my daughter and my husband, two weeks earlier, did have to on their airline. I flew Singapore and did not. Nobody really, hardly anyone had masks on. It was interesting. I wonder if that's how you got your cold, Caro. Look, Corrie, no need to be. I, I think it was probably going from thirty degrees to one degrees. Don't you? <laughs> don't you? It, so- it sounds worse than it is, and I apologise, everyone, for my voice. No, look, I arrived on an early, crisp sunny morning saturday morning the weather was absolutely beautiful we walked to one of our favorite markets bought some food went round and visited my son and his partner who have a fabulous apartment just north of um park and what, what else did we do went to one of our favorite restaurants for dinner caught up with all the family living here um discovered discovered some great i can't believe i lived here for three months and never found until this time De Hallen, which is um An old sort of tram depot which has become a massive food market, um, craft market, there's a fabulous cinema there, some lovely antique shops, that also is sort of just north of Vondal Park. It's absolutely fabulous Corrie, so Brendan's been doing the recce for me, he arrived a bit earlier than I did and um, set us up in our little attic apartment and we're having a lovely time. I bought a bike, I actually decided it worked out cheaper to buy one this time than rent one a fabulous little secondhand bike, which didn't cost much at all. The nice man did not appreciate it when I tried to bargain him down, but there we are. He did give me my new bell for free. So, you know, that's the thing. You cannot get to this city and not have a bike. Got some wonderful cultural highlights coming up that I'll tell you about. It's just, it's been lovely. It's quite strange going away at this time of year, but it's good.
1: Oh, well, that's great because it was a beautiful weekend, the weekend before you left, and We're all swimming and sitting at the beach and I wondered whether you might have just been having, even though family are over there and there's so much to look forward to, but I wondered whether you might just be having a little bit of a a secret sad moment about summer. Although we will be still in the midst of summer when you return. Caro, tell me about the mood in Amsterdam at the moment, because as we know, there have been all of these energy issues permeating through Europe as a result of the war in Ukraine. And I wondered whether, in fact, it had hit the Netherlands, whether there were significant concerns about heating and energy there.
2: Massive concerns, but the government has put a cap on energy bills, so everybody's very relieved. Um, Spoke to um, my daughter's old landlady, Willemine, yesterday, and she said she, she just sweeps it under the carpet, buries her head in the sand, can't think about it, can't talk about it. The costs are astronomical. And everybody's just turned their heating down a little bit here, you know, just a lot more um, sensible about how they warm their houses in winter. And um, But as I said, the government stepped in and the prices are a lot better. But yes, everybody's probably talking. That is something everyone talks about. Everyone's just sensible about the way they dress in winter. You know, much it's completely different to home. You actually, there's less vanity. When you go out, you just have to be warm and it's layer upon layer upon layer.
1: Well, we could all uh, learn actually from that. I think too often we're expecting our houses and our offices to be heated up to the gazoo. So maybe there are some uh, some good lessons being learned. Summer here has uh, continued in your absence. and um, the,
2: Glad to hear it, Corrie. <laughs> um,
1: fortunately for the children going back to school this week, they didn't have a heat wave, which is pretty much you could set your clock by that happening every single year. Uh, I am now the grandparent of a schoolchild, so that's been pretty exciting in our house. And um, you'll be pleased to hear, Caro, that the colours of Harriet's new uniform pretty much will look a little bit like, perhaps if you stood at a distance, the Hawthorne colours. So very happy with the golden brown of her new uniform.
2: <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, happy, I'm happy for Hattie, but... <laughs> I don't know if it would be my choice. Oh, that's very exciting, Corrie. Isn't it a terrible time to go back to school? I always think we should change the way we schedule our summer, and I've said that to you many times and on this podcast.
1: We sure have. We've been banging on about that for years. On
2: on the so-called Australia Day weekend. That sort of wasn't much of a day in Melbourne, was it? We recorded our last podcast on the eve of January 26. It was a pretty miserable day in terms of um, the demonstrations and the public feeling. I think pretty emphatic the way people feel about it.
1: I think that's right, Carol. I think there's a bit of a, the buzz has gone out of it. If you remember Australia days 15 and 20 years ago, it was always room, there was always room for a, a breakfast or a gathering or lunch or a picnic in the park or something. A lot of that seems to have disappeared and I think that's really summing up the mood of the nation. No doubt about it. It was a talking issue as well on uh, throughout the media that I was listening to. I worked, as I told you last week. And I think a lot of people actually just watching our coastal town, I think a lot of people did take the Friday off. So once again, the public holiday, uh, is more about a celebration of having a couple of days off and a long weekend than actually people thinking about well, what is
2: this for? What does it mean? But um, I have no doubt. I have no doubt they're going to change the date. Now, did you catch the tennis? It was actually pretty big over here too. A lot of interest in Amsterdam on the Australian Open.
1: Well, that's really good to hear. That because there has been, of course, it won't surprise you that uh, News Limited have been throwing brickbats at Channel Nine, saying what a disaster. Months ago, Channel 9 signed a $500 million deal to extend its broadcasting rights until 2030 for the Australian Open tournament, and they are saying that ratings have been down 30 to 40%. Uh, Although, it is interesting, the crowds have been good at the tennis, they've been really good around Melbourne Park at all the external sites and Federation Square and everything. I think there's been a real buzz in Melbourne, at least one I've picked up, but... um, I must say, uh, illness got the better of me because I was going to bed each night pretty early, didn't watch it during the day, and um, wondered, in fact, when I was thinking about this rating story, Carol, what was it that, wh- wh- what were the reasons why I was less connected to the tennis than I have been in previous years? There have been analysts saying, oh, it's because there were so few Aussies at the top, uh, and of course, your best friend, Nick Kyrgios, was out of the tournament early on. Um, before it even began, but uh, people have been saying really were people that interested in the Djokovic City final on Sunday night. They did have 2.3 million people watch that, so that was pretty terrific and that made up just over 20% for the whole fortnight's viewing. But I don't know, Cara, I don't know whether the dearth of Australian players did really do it for me. My feeling is more, and I'm interested to know what you think, is I feel that there's been so much focus in recent years on those big stars like Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer and uh, Djokovic, of course, and the Williams sisters, that in fact those those little stars, the, the younger stars shining brightly, maybe they haven't received the attention perhaps that they deserved. And so now that they're at the peak of their careers, we're all kind of going, who are they?
2: Um I think tennis is always about the big names. I think Djokovic really divided people, as he has for the last couple of years. And it was, you know, there's a whole political situation with his father, created a lot of bad feeling. Not having Ash Barty clearly hurt the ratings. Not having Curios, as you said, hurt the ratings. The retirement, if he goes along with his retirement, of Serena, obviously, that's someone who has really gone, you know, really made a big hole in the women's calendar. I think the withdrawals really did damage the tournament, but I thought there was actually some great tennis. And Sissipas is just a a big hero here. And although he lost in straight sets, that sort of belied the um effort he put in. That second set, he really spooked Djokovic.
1: I agree. It was very good tennis. It was really good tennis to watch, no doubt about that. And the women's final was terrific as well. Yes, it's um, it's it's interesting to think about tennis and 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 where it sits in. A, do you remember though? Maybe there are there were fewer distractions when we were younger, but I can remember just
2: being glued to that television set for those two weeks. I think I think there was also the, the Swedish invasion, and you know names like um, Gerolitis and the Stasi, and you know they were big stars. John McEnroe, Jimmy Connors, they were. They were controversial. They were loud. Some of them were incredibly bad sports and probably damaged the sport. But I think it's changed a bit. I love the tribute to the women pioneers, Yes. you know, including Yvonne Goulagong. I thought that was absolutely brilliant. And um, I thought it had some great moments. I just think it was hurt by the lack of star power, particularly Australian star power.
1: Well, let's hope that all changes in the next couple of years. Caro, I'm glad you were watching it uh, over there with your little pair of clogs on. And, um, did you have
2: a view? Did you have a view about the prime minister spending three nights at the tennis? I thought it was actually terrific.
1: Although people will say, "Oh, she's so pro Anthony Albanese." Do you know what? There wasn't an awful lot happening on the agenda, and I think to be seen, to be part of it, was a good thing. Of course. All bets are off. If there had been uh, those terrible floods of this time last year, or or bushfires, or anything else, of course that would have been inappropriate, and he would have had business elsewhere. But I think there is something to be said for uh, for for the, for the presence there. What do you think? Am I being too too nice?
2: There is a view that he should have been um, in Australia's heartland, further north, with, with all the problems going on. But um I don't begrudge the prime minister turning up at uh, one of our biggest sporting, biggest international sporting events. No, not at all.
1: Carol, we might um, have a bit of a toast now to those winners of the Australian Open. We're going to bring Miles in. He has his tennis gear on, and he's going to sit on top of the trolley, and Jane's going to wheel him in now. Miles Thompson from. Prince Wine Store joins our podcast every week. Miles, it's delightful to see you in person, and Kara's on the line from Amsterdam, where she's probably having a beer or I don't even know what they drink over there. But um, we're talking about Shablis this week.
3: Mm, good stuff.
1: I am really, really crazy for Shablis. Oh, good. And I think probably well, well, really, since we've been working with you on the podcast the past couple of years, summer. Hasn't been summer without a dozen or so in the box from Prince Wine Store. Going down to the beach for summer,
3: got to do it. It's perfect. The perfect match.
1: Tell me, or tell us about mm. Chablis. Tell us about the grape. Tell us where uh, primarily it's grown. The best, sure. the best Chablis growing regions in the world, well, and here so, in Australia too.
3: Well, so Chablis, so Chablis is, is the region, uh, and there's, a, I think there's a town as well. But Chablis is the region. Um, it's all Chardonnay and it has to be. So if it's, it's, if it says Chablis on the label and it's all Chardonnay, that's the way it is. That's the law. We can't, we, we used to be able to here in Australia put Chablis on the label. Um, but we can't anymore because we have, we have an agreement with Europe with wines and wine labeling and that sort of stuff. So it's like this protected, it's this protective region and it's protected because it's so unique. So it has this particular soil type, which is called Kimmeridgian clay soil and it's these clay soils with basically fossilized sea animals in it. So this really like limestone rich. And it's what gives Chablis its really racy, zesty, sort of mineral-driven palate and nose. And it's got this typical often you hear them talk about oysters sort of oyster shell. Or maybe even like iodine, but that oyster sort of shell aroma in particular is what you associate with Chablis. It's that real kind of like racy, crunchy, super vibrant. Style of Chardonnay. So, if you think un-oaked Chardonnay, if you think what we maybe think of Australia as un-oaked Chardonnay, that's kind of what you're thinking with Chablis. Now, Chablis can be oaked and not; depends on the producer. It's usually you don't see it as much as you might hear in a normal sort of Chardonnay, but it's usually about that purity that you get from Chablis.
1: And so, would it, so does, does it then? It might vary in color. Um... Yeah, get, colour's always a funny deeper, one. I wouldn't. Deeper yellows have ever, yeah, so
3: the deeper yellows you're probably going to see like further south down in like burg, what I like called Burgundy proper, like down in that sort of southern, southern sort of Burgundy area, um, and obviously here in Australia you'll see those more sort of deep colours. You tend to see it a little bit lighter coloured coming out of Chablis. Yeah.
1: Uh, so if we grow, if do do we we can't name it in Australia, but no. can we grow it?
3: Well, it's Chardonnay, so you can grow similar. Chardonnay. Yes, but yes. anything
1: similar to it.
3: No, I mean some people. Some people will say they make their their Chardonnays in that style or something like that. But you know, it's you've always got to be careful if you're comparing yourself to, you know, the original, <laughs> the original soil the, and the yeah, original environment. Yeah, because that's what you yeah. can't, That's that's the whole thing with French wine, and Italian wine, and these European wines. Is you can't you can grow the same grapes, but you can't recreate the wine because everything's unique. The soil. The viticulture, the the, the even the, like the history and the winemaking and the microclimates and the weather and all that stuff go to make a particular sort of you know imprint the wine with a certain style.
2: Can you explain why Chablis is so much more expensive on a, on average than other
3: wines? Well, the, the, so but... the funny thing about Chablis at the moment is, or or certainly the the last up until the last couple of years was that when you looked at Chablis, say versus like somewhere like Merceau or Pellini montrachet which are these other very famous Chardonnay producing, um, areas in France, it is very cheap in comparison. So when you, when you look at it in the Australian markets, it's always going to be expensive, like a lot of these European and and other international wines are because the taxes and the way that things are priced and shipping them over here and all that sort of stuff. Um, But in relative terms, when you look at the rest of Europe, in particular France and and Chardonnay, you know, famous Chardonnay producing regions of, of Europe and France, it's relatively cheap, although that's changing you're starting to see it pick up because yeah. people are obsessed by it at the moment. So we, we they, have a shbley ta- Will they produce
1: mm. more then because the world Well they can't is. because
3: it's the so the area is defined. So you know they say this is the area of Chablis, you know, 10k north of here, 10k east of here, 10k west of there and 10k south of whatever or whatever it's defined as, which is the soil type and right. And so that'll never change. You can plant more and, vines per hectare or whatever if you want to get maybe some more uh, yield out of your, out of your vineyards, but so you, know, you can't we're just, stuck, you we're can't stuck just with
1: like um, 50 bucks a bottle then.
3: Yeah. I'd say 50 bucks a bottle is your starting point, which should be yeah. these days. Yeah, it well. used to be about 35, 40. You could get some nice wines, but just in the, it, literally in the last five years, it's just every year it's sort of gone up 5%. So now
2: so you're having a taste, you're having a tasting. Um, what, what can yeah. you recommend?
3: Well, we're, we're having a tasting in a, in a couple of weeks. Um, and there's actually, we've just been looking at a bunch of, of wines and there's a lot of really good stuff. And there'll be a couple there. There's one that won't be there that I'm going to talk about today. And then, then there's a couple that, and then there's one that will be there as well. So you'll get to try it if you come along, although I think it's almost sold out. So
1: so tell us, um, tell us what, you've, what you're you recommending.
3: Right. So I've got two, I picked two really sort of what I would call like pure classic Chablis. They, they don't use any oak, both these producers. One's called Gilbert Peak and one's called La Chantamel. Um, Chantemel uses no oak at all, steel tank, uh, they're third generation winemakers. Although the grandfather used to be at Cooper, which is part of the reason why they don't use oak because the son hated the smell of oak cause they're always processing oak. So when he sort of took over and they were making wine, he decided no oak in the wines and that's carried on now as well. So they're a very pure sort of example. So that lovely, like citrus, that kind of quartz-y sort of powder that you get, that like lemon pith kind of thing going on. Very, very pure, very, very clean style Chardonnay.
1: And how much is the Le Chantemel So
3: that's 55. Yep. And the Gilbert Peak, they do the same. They don't use any oak at all. Um, it's it's all in stainless steel tank, but they do do uh, what's called uh, lee stirring. So when the the <coughs> yeast cells die from fermentation, they leave them on the wine and they stir them through the wine and it and it contact with the wine gives it this lovely texture and weight. So they're very similar in style. They have that, like, lovely sort of lemon pith, and they've got that real sort of, like, mineral-driven nose, that oyster shell on them. But then on the palate, they have a bit more sort of flesh and weight, and they've got this lovely texture that comes from that lee stirring. So really cool wines, but also but very pure at the same time.
1: Carol, I know it's early morning over there, but don't you just want to have a <laughs> glass of Chablis the way Miles is <laughs> describing it? It's just... Beautiful Should have on right now. <laughs> oh, please. Could we?
3: But we I we're am enjoying right a cup
2: of tea, Corrie, at the <laughs> moment, but I must say, I must say if it was later <laughs> in the day, it's one of my favourite wines. And you're right, Miles, it's certainly a lot cheaper over here when you buy it in Europe.
3: Oh, I bet, yeah.
1: So tell us about the Gilbert P, what price there?
3: Uh, so the Gilbert Peak is uh Peak. 60, sorry, Peak. Gilbert Peak, yeah. P I C Q, I think it is. Uh sixty-eight.
1: Sixty eight. Yep. So that is uh, La Chantemel at $55 a bottle, and the Gilbert Pig uh, $68, $68 a bottle. Mm. Uh, neither of them are, are in oak barrels. Um, they have that very distinctive oyster shell mm. kind of taste, a bit lemony, rather delicious, uh, and you you get quite excited when you talk about Chablis.
3: Yeah, it used to be one of those wines. A little I, twinkle in your eye today, yeah. Miles. I used to be... Might have b- had
1: one on the way here.
3: Well, almost. I thought I'd better try it just to make sure I know what I'm talking <laughs> about. No, didn't quite. But I, I used to not be a huge fan I, when I sort of first started in the wine industry. I thought they were a bit. I guess I thought they were a bit sort of nothing, and there wasn't much going on. But I've really changed my tune. I think they're such a wonderfully like pure and very reflective of their terroir, very reflective of where they're grown. And I think that's what makes them such an interesting wine. They're mm-hmm. very hard. They're very hard to copy. You, you can make wines look similar to some of the stuff you see in Burgundy with winemaking techniques. But I think it's very difficult with Chablis because it's just hard to copy that that soil and that weather and all those things that make it so unique.
1: Well, Carol, I, I feel like we've found uh, the third or fourth stop on the Miles Thompson Don't mm. Shoot the Messenger Wine Tour of Europe. Definitely we all want to go to that region of France. Miles, thanks for coming in and for everybody who wants to order the Gilbert Pig or the Chantamel uh, Chablis, what do we do?
3: So just jump on the website. Um, the page is up there, the Don't Shoot the Messenger page. You can jump on there and it has the list of all the wines we talk about and uh, put in the code ME Doubles at your checkout and you'll get 10% off the wines.
1: So easy, everybody. Go do it, princewinestore.com.au. And, Miles, thanks so much for coming in. Oh, Thank you. And that was Miles Thompson of Prince Wine Store. Don't forget princewinestore.com.au and Carol on to Book Screen and Food. And I have a book today. So you let that little voice of yours have a break for a second. I'm going to tell everybody about all the broken places by John Boyne. John John Boyne is actually in the country this week and in fact on Thursday night will be my guest at an in conversation at the South Yarra Library. So that's really exciting. And so for the purposes of research for that, Caro, I read both The Boy in the Striped Pyjamas, which was John Boyne's 2006 bestseller award-winning novel. It was his breakout novel, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it really was, and and has been picked up by a lot of uh, secondary schools as as a book to read as part of their syllabus. And John has revisited all these years later the story of Bruno, the little boy who uh, who died in that novel, his family, what happened in particular to his sister Gretel. So all these years later, the follow-up is called All the Broken Places. It was released a couple of weeks ago and John is now doing his uh, whirlwind international tour of, um, of it, to promote it, and we're lucky enough to be seeing him. So reading both the books, Caro, back-to-back, back was a very, very intense experience, as you would understand. Those who haven't ever heard of The Boy in the Striped Pyjamas or indeed seen the wonderful film that was made in, I think, about 2008 or 2009, it's the story of Bruno, the young son of an Auschwitz Nazi commandant, and uh, the particular friendship that Bruno who is 9 forms with a boy called Shmuel the little boy who lives on the other side of the barbed wire fence so Bruno lives at the camp in the commandant's house and lo and behold one day sitting on the other side of the fence he meets Shmuel his new friend and this this book and this movie i have to say have one of ha- has one of the most tragic endings of any holocaust novel that you will read and so now we pick up the story of Gretel and Gretel is the narrator of this book she's a widow in her early 90s it's uh it's um probably around the year 2000s I guess because um she is a young probably 12 or 13 or 14 years of age when all of this is unfolding at Auschwitz her father, of course, has been executed for war crimes and she and her mother have fled to France. Uh, and and all of all of this is part of the novel in these flashbacks. It's really incredible and sad and traumatic what happens to the two of them as they try to deny their past. But here is Gretel, oh. um, a widow, as I said, in her early 90s, living in a very comfortable Mayfair flat. Her husband, who was an academic, has died only a few years earlier and she is really, the only challenge in her life, is, I think, is to try and keep the business of her 60-something son and only child, trying to keep him and the business afloat with a series of loans because she is, has become rather a wealthy woman, Gretel. Um, as, as I said, she was uh, a young girl at the time of The Boy in the Striped Pyjamas. And in this book, we go back to that time and we follow her with a series of flashbacks around that 10-year post-war period when the family go to France and uh, and and then what what follows after that she ends up in uh, in England and is married and we um, and we travel with her through the past there as well but every all the memories that she's tried to keep dormant and buried all come to the fore when a new family move into the Mayfair apartment block and move into the flat downstairs and The the apartment is taken over by a film producer, his rather fragile actress wife, who is beautiful but drinking too much. We will come to the... and we find the source of her unhappiness as the book unfolds. And they have a nine-year-old son who triggers for Gretel the memories of her brother Bruno. There are some really chilling scenes of domestic violence and verbal abuse, Carol in this. And Gretel finds herself straying from the detached neighbour looking through the curtains to actually becoming an engaged rescuer. And indeed, at some point, she is threatened with violence. We wonder, with this beautiful little boy with whom Gretel uh, becomes friendly, can she redeem herself? Indeed, is redemption possible at all? So this book is a crackerjack novel, moves at a good pace. I think John Boyne may have some critics out there who may wonder about the possibility of redemption and the sins of an earlier life, but uh, it certainly is a really, really worthwhile novel and if you read The Boy in the Striped Pyjamas, you will definitely be wanting to read All the Broken Places by John Boyne.
2: Do you need to have read the first one, though?
1: I don't think so, but I would suggest that people maybe Googled The Boy in the Striped Pyjamas and... There are certainly YouTubes of different scenes. It was a beautiful film. I remember that years ago, seeing
2: it. Yeah, I saw the film. Oh, Great be- film.
1: beautifully shot, wasn't it? And uh, and I think the end scenes are very important. Um, what happens to Bruno and Schmall, I think probably they create some kind of anchor for this second book. So you don't have to have read the first one, but you probably need to know what the synopsis is. cara off to the movies with you and our dear friend, I'd love to say friend of the podcast, Bill Nye.
2: If only. If only. <laughs> Look, he's, he, he's been nominated for an Oscar for Living, and if he won it, I would not be disappointed. I think he puts in one of his all-time great performances of a a pretty sad, closed man, a public servant in England, sort of post-war, thinking 1950s. Corrie, this is one of the most beautifully shot films I think I've ever seen. In the style of the old David Lean, sort of, or almost... Um, Ealing Studio dramas that came out of England during that time. He plays a public servant, he's ageing, he finds out early in the film he only has months to live. And it's what happens to his sheltered, closeted, sad life and what he tries to do in the end to make his life have some meaning. Great supportive performances, particularly by Amy Lou Wood, who was in that lovely three-part TV series, I think there were three seasons of um, Sex Education. She plays a young co worker who he befriends in his last weeks and months. The story is simply beautiful. It is um, actually a remake of a Japanese film, a classic Japanese film called um, To Live from the 1950s. And interestingly, the screenplay is written by Kazuo Ishigaro, who wrote Remains of the Day and also Never Let Me Go. I just highly, highly recommend this film. And because it's Oscar season, as you know, Corrie, and we're in Europe, I'm in Europe, there, there are cinemas that just chock-a-block with great films. So they have a great system here where you can join a form of a film club, and I think it's €31 Euros a month, and you can go and see every any film you like. Oh, so, if, what a great bargain. <laughs> it's it's absolutely brilliant. So um, I saw it at this wonderful aforementioned um. Um, rebuilt sort of um, tram depot, to which is just a great little cinema area, the, like all the cinemas here, you know, great bar, great coffee shop, um, beautiful part of town. And I just, this film, the, the woman next to me could not stop crying and it, it almost made me cry too. It was a, just a, a brilliant performance and a great film. So um, highly, highly recommend Living starring Bill Nye. Now, before I went away, Corrie, I tried our friend Celia's hummus and I said, you have to give the podcast this recipe and you've tried it too, I gather.
1: Yes, I had it. um, uh, I think last year, actually, when the little seal came for dinner and bought the, she describes it as Celia's world famous hummus. And, um, and then there are a series of laughing emojis next to that. (laughs) Um, And she says this, this recipe comes with more than a little inspiration from the Israeli chef, Michael Solomonov. So uh, hats off to him as well. And this is what is in the beautiful hummus. 500 grams of akva, spelt A-C-H-V-A, akva brand tahini, two tins of Coles brand chickpeas, one and a half cups of iced water, the juice of one or one and a half lemons, just work that out, just have a taste and see what suits, one garlic clove, one tablespoon of kosher salt, or oh, molden is also okay, and one teaspoon of ground cumin. Put the water, lemon juice, salt, and cumin into a food processor um, and uh whiz it around, add the tahini, give in a couple of minutes, give it a couple of minutes to reach smooth consistency, and then add the chickpeas and whiz the whole thing around for another two or three minutes until it reaches your preferred consistency. And then, of course, like all these things, you can taste and adjust with the lemon juice and the salt and whiz it around again. And that's it. Um, Celia says, it's best straight from the machine but can be stored well in the fridge for up to a week. Be sure to let it reach room temperature before serving. Delicious with carrots, celery and cucumber batons, but also delicious with any crunchy cracker or corn chip. And she concludes, you will never buy processed hummus
2: again. How, how easy is that? I completely agree with her. And like um, another friend of mine, Willie Ziggier makes a great hummus. And he also says you don't need to use dried chickpeas and soak them. You can also just you can cook them without soaking them or take them straight from a tin. And Celia says that's the best way. I thought it was absolutely delicious. It's become a real staple in our diet, hasn't it? It really this has. It goes with everything.
1: It is, and it's also a great substitute for butter as well, if you just want a cracker with something on it. So that was BSF, brought to us each week as it is by Reed Energy, powered by the Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. Isn't it time you called Red Energy on 131 806? Now, Caro, it's your turn to be grumpy about having a cold or is there something else that's
2: really annoying you? Are you familiar with the work of Pip Edwards? I am not, Caro. Well, you probably don't need to be, but if you follow social media, she is a a social media influencer, one of the biggest fashion influencers in this country. She Previously had a relationship with Michael Clark, and she was apparently the reason for that dreadful scene at Noosa involving Michael Clark and his former, I assume, former partner Jade Yarborough. Um, I think Pip might have um, spilt the beans on um, something that went on between herself and Michael Clark while he was with Jade. I'm not so much having a crack at Pip Edwards, but what is wrong with our media now? When you pick up the Daily Mail or you read a Daily Mail website. Pip Edwards' Revenge Body. Surely we're past the days of revenge body. Pip Edwards on on, um, January 26th went to Camp Cove in Sydney wearing a stunning bikini. I think the top was gold and the bottom was black. I can't even remember. But the headline in the Daily Mail was Pip Edwards' Revenge Body. Oh, I can't stand that. On so many levels on so many levels. It was a bit like when Nadia Bartel went to the Brownlow and it was Nadia's Bartel's um, revenge... Revenge dress. Mm. Brownlow outfit. Look, mm. seriously, where are we headed when news outlets are going with this sort of stuff? Absolutely crazy. Here's a 40-year-old woman going to the beach and looking great and it's suddenly a revenge body. Please give me a spell.
1: Well, you know, Caro, that I was pulling my hair out watching the tennis and that the consistent ads on Married, Married at First Sight. And do you know, I think this is right, Miss Jane, yeah, Miss Jane will correct me or otherwise, but I gather that it's being scheduled Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, primetime. What happened to the days when the best shows were fighting each other for that primetime spot on Channel 9? What is with this, this whole idea of... Women and men competing against one another, on in terms of
2: looks, the way they talk,
1: their interest, the way they kiss—it's pathetic.
2: Well, people love it. That's why it's big. That's why the scheduling goes the way it is. Caro,
1: time for six quick questions for Red Energy. Uh, me to you first. I am very interested, and I think a lot of our potties will be too about the luggage challenge that you set yourself last week. You told everybody you were going to only take hand luggage, which, given you're going into the depths of winter and possibly snow. We all wondered
2: how you were going to do it. Failed oh, dismally, dismally. <laughs> it, it took me about 10 minutes of packing to realise it was not going to work. <laughs> Look, <laughs> I know I was able to borrow coats and jumpers over here from family members, but seriously, you know, you're given a couple of lovely presents for Little Baby Sunday. Um, you've got to pack runners or wear runners. Got to have a pair of boots and one other pair of walking shoes. No, it was a complete disaster, Corrie. The big suitcase came and um, it took ages to come out. And I did think how smug the people on the plane were with their hand luggage, how I could have done it. I I thought I could have done it. When I was leaving behind pyjamas and taking just one jumper, I thought, no, no, this isn't going to cut it. So I'm afraid to say it did not work. Corrie, which January mystery remains unresolved and has received little coverage.
1: Well, Carol, have you been following the tale of Julian Sands, the actor who you and I fell in love with in the mid-80s because he was in that wonderful Merchant Ivory movie, A Room with a View? Well, he's disappeared. He went hiking in California and he's disappeared. And I just thought it would have just received more coverage, perhaps here in Australia or indeed anywhere, than it has. So... Uh, So Julian Sands, who is in his 60s, uh, very fit, very keen hiker and a very experienced hiker, I understand. He disappeared in California's San Gabriel Mountains in, uh, I think it was two and a half weeks ago, so the middle of January. And um, there, there was great concern, of course, for his welfare and nobody can find him. He was hiking around an area called the Baldy Bowl which apparently at this time of year, can it can sometimes snow in that region. But he's just disappeared. And I would have thought an actor of his note, he's been in the killing fields and, a, well, not one of my favourite movies, Arachnophobia, but it might be yours, but box, Boxing <laughs> Helena. And um, and he's just disappeared. And I think that's it. I think he's gone.
2: That's, um, that seems very odd. And odd they haven't found him.
1: Odd that they haven't found him. He leaves a wife uh, and a couple of children. He lives in North Hollywood. Um, this must be devastating for everybody. Anyway, I just thought about him the other day because I remember seeing the first news flash and it actually wasn't apparent or obvious or easy really to try and find out what was happening. So I thought, mm, that's a new story that snuck by. Um, Cara, what footy story surprised you most this week? The
3: departure,
2: sudden departure, of Jeff Walsh from the yes. St Kilda Football Club just four months after he took over with much fanfare as head of football um, the appointment was made pretty much in conjunction with Ross Lyon's appointment as senior coach and the sacking of Brett Ratton it was um, you might remember broken on footy classified by Eddie Maguire who had picked it up on the famous um, Lindsay Fox 80th yacht party because um, I think there were quite a few St Kilda bosses there including the president Andrew Bassett Um, Just days after St Kilda had announced they were further bolstering their football stocks with Stephen Silvani going back to the club to work with Ross Lyon, Graham Allen coming back on in an expanded role, Jeff Walsh is gone. Just, it says for family reasons, Um, I'm really surprised. I'm really, really surprised that that's happened so quickly and um, it'll be interesting to see how they ultimately um, cover the loss. I think Dave Misson, who's also come back as a fitness boss, is going to take over in the short term. But um, I just wonder that the football department soft cap, the cost they are spending and the bolstering of resources has been absolutely dramatic. And it's going to be very interesting in terms of payout and how all that works. But, yeah, it did raise my eyebrows. I was very surprised. Corrie, human composting, yes or no? What yeah. on earth are you talking about?
1: Well, it's... um. You, you. This is. This is starting to take off in the U.S. We need certain legis- legislations here. I understand for this to happen here, but you can actually be buried in an insulated wooden box, uh, about two meters in length, and it's lined with waterproof roofing material, and it's packed with wood chips and straw, and um, there are two large spool wheels on either side of the box coffin, and. Um, it can sit across the floor and the way it is oxygenated, uh, the body starts to decompose. And after about three months, you can then take the matter. There are some issues. I'm trying to do this gently. It's, it's, It's actually really hard to talk about this because some people might be grieving at the moment so I'm very mindful but you can actually take some of the larger bones that might be left and they can be pulverised and returned to the vessel for another couple of months of composting. Apparently teeth can be removed to prevent contamination from mercury in your fillings and this vessel, this box, must reach 55 degrees Celsius for 72 continuous hours to kill any bacteria and so on but once all that's done... Uh, just little things start to happen. The wood chips and the straw are enough to transform transform into soil and your body just starts to decompose. And then, Caro, a few months later, we can take a handful of the dust and spread you all over the veggie patch.
2: Gives a whole new meaning to the word landfill, doesn't it? (laughs) Sorry to be flippant, but...
1: I, just, I think it Look just like makes it. sense. I mean, consider the uh, cremation, for example, yes. consider consider the, the fossil fuel issue there. And I, I, I don't know, I just think body composting, it does re- reduce, if, if human remains can be reduced to natural or- organic matter and through a natural process over a few months, then maybe that's what you do. I just wouldn't want to open the box. Miss Jane has her hand up. You're about to I'm tell us she'll so, no, signed I'm up for it. something. I'm so thrilled money. that
0: you've mentioned this, Corrie, because it bothers me that exactly like you say, normal burials, my mother's ashes are under a mulberry tree I planted at my sister's in the Adelaide Hills, and my placenta is in a lemon tree hole.
2: So, well, there
1: you go. <laughs> well, we were talking about th- this,
2: this, <laughs>
1: this topic, Jane, actually set off the girls on the walk the other day because we Georgie apparently has her... Grandmother in a drawer in in her walk-in <laughs> wardrobe. Pete's mum and dad, who both lived in San Francisco, and he, he they wanted to be buried back in Australia. So he he accompanied both of them individually, a few years apart, back. They were in our walk-in wardrobe for a bit of a time, but I think it is time. Yes. At some point, you have yes. to have to say goodbye, and I think that's a great idea to spread it in an area where. Um, where nature can benefit, Jane. Let's just leave it at that, shall we? Caro.
2: I wouldn't recommend it on a windy day wearing a fur coat. No, I we know so that. We know that story.
1: <laughs> I wasn't going to tell that story. Um, Caro, Australian born writer Shirley Hazard, who we love, she had a birthday this week. She was born on the 30th of January, 1931. What is your favourite Shirley book?
2: Well, I'm assuming she would have had a birthday. Oh, sorry, did I not say that?
1: Would have. She's she's no no longer longer with us. She's not being um, human composting as we speak.
2: Look, she's a a literary giant, Shirley has it, and an international literary giant who became a a famous sort of expat Australian writer, but absolutely no doubt her classic, The Transit of Venus, is one of the best books I've ever read. Just a wonderful, wonderful book. I love The Great Fire. I loved... um, is it the evening of the holiday? I pretty much loved everything she's ever written, and she didn't write a huge amount. I mean, she took years to follow up *Transit of Venus*, and I sort of can't blame her given what an absolute classic it was. But um, yep, yeah, I-, I would recommend it to anyone.
1: I I agree, and I think it's a perfect romance. It's the most perfect romantic novel, don't you think?
2: Oh, it's just it's pretty tragic too. Corey, what's this week's amazing fact?
1: Well, last week, uh, a question on notice, I said I was going to explain what the term woke means. And it's the old meaning of the word defines woke as simply the past simple pretense of wake, as in to wake up or awake. Uh, It arrived officially in dictionaries in 2017, and it's described by Webster's as chiefly US slang. But the dictionary defines the word as aware of and actively attentive to important facts and issues, especially issues of racial and social justice. So woke Caro is, refers to somebody becoming informed about a particular topic in a political or cultural sense. And then of course they have woken up to these issues, usually issues of injustice. They've woken up and, um, it, uh, it, it originates the first time it was used that we can track it It was in 1962 in a New York Times article where William Melville Kelly, the writer title, the title of this piece he wrote was, If You're Woke, You Dig It. And so it was a, it was sort of drawing in on um, African-American vernacular. And the beatniks, interesting, white beat, beatniks ac- actually used the word woke a fair bit. And, um, In 2012, when the Russian feminist group Pussy Riot was imprisoned for a protest, and we remember that very well, they tweeted, truth requires no belief, stay woke, watch closely. Now, of course, the word reached mainstream vernacular when Black Lives Matter movement used the hashtag stay woke um, during a series of uh, brutal police, uh, the murdering of innocent people by police. And I just wonder about whether people, when they refer to it, are using it correctly. It seems to have become a bit of a weapon for conservative forces—a word that people spit out of their mouths, and they say, "Oh, you're so woke." You know, it's—they seem to use it with contempt. I don't think they actually should, because in a way, it's a bit of a—it's um, a bit of a compliment, Caro. It means that you've done your, your study. But I've heard people say, um, "You know, oh, you're so woke," because you might say somewhere, oh, you prefer Joe Biden to Donald Trump. Or you might say, oh, you prefer a soy latte to a double espresso. And they go, oh, you're so woke. I don't know. I just think people need to sometimes delve into the meaning of a word before they start throwing it around.
2: Well, it's become a derisive to- uh, word, hasn't it? Particularly when um, someone like Andrew Bolt is writing a column. He'll use the word woke in a very sarcastic, dismissive way.
1: That's right. And it makes us feel lesser or pe- when people hear it, you feel lesser. But in fact, the original meaning of it is, is that you are motivated enough to go and find out more. You have woken up your, your, um, your, your ability to, to, to learn more and your acceptance and your understanding. Anyway, I just thought that was a really interesting little uh, fact for this week. And um, I think that's it. Any other news from Amsterdam that you want to impart? Any words of wisdom? Oh.
2: Not really. Going to discovering a new local pool today, taking the little um, sunshine girl, taking Sunday swimming Right. and um, going to a look, I've got a couple of um, cultural events that are coming up. There's a massive Vermeer exhibition on at the Rijksmuseum. And oh look, there's a lot going on, all of which I'll fill you in again when we next meet, Corey.
1: Well, we love your international travels, Caro, So stay safe, and we'll talk to you. Uh, maybe not next week, but the week after, I think. And um, and and say hello to all the fam over there. Thank you, Miss Jane, for pulling it all together and for getting Caro on the little screen. And of course, thank you to Miles Thompson from Prince Weinstor for coming in, and of course to our podcast sponsors, Red Energy, 100% Australian electricity and gas. Thank you very much for your support. And don't forget to send us some messages via feedback at Don't Shoot Pod. We love hearing your brickbats and bouquets. And, Carol, what do we say? Don't shoot the messenger.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Don't Shoot the Messenger. And if you'd like to support the podcast, tell a friend about the show. Perhaps they haven't discovered it yet. You can send us an email to feedback at dontshootpod.com.au. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook using the handle at dontshootpod and sign up for our weekly email. We'll send you the show notes straight to your inbox. And of course, thanks to our show sponsors, Red Energy and Prince Wine Store.